Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, you know, vaccinations are all the rage right now. Have you gotten any of yours? I am getting my vaccination next week. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. I am going to get vaccinated on a Thursday, which will require me to drive two hours to Sacramento in order to make that happen. That is a very long drive to get a vaccination. What if you don't have a car? What happens then? Well, thankfully, I do have a car, so it's fine. But people who don't have a car, well, I wish you the best of luck. I can't even drive. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are driving multiple hours to get vaccinations. I have a friend who lives in L.A. who drove up to Bakersfield, which is like three hours away, in order to get her vaccination. So it's, as usual, the people who actually have money are the ones who are going to end up getting the, the benefit, and the ones who are more underprivileged are not. That's our society. Yeah, same old, same old. I'm same actually old, old. Um, in... It, Basically, Ontario's in a lot of trouble right now, and they've got a fire lit under their butt. And they've been doing kind of like rollouts according to age and need, and Indigenous people get it first. Um, but everything's going really sideways right now. So I'm in a hot spot, apparently, one of the worst areas in Toronto for the disease. So we're going to have a mobile clinic come in at some point soon and, and start just vaccinating everyone over the age of 18. Like, stick out your arm, you get a needle. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, I'm just kind of waiting on news about that. Well, I have some better news, Nadia. Yes. Yes, I have accepted a full-time position over at IGN, where I will be reunited with my old friend Matt Kim from US Gamer, as well as Reb Valentine, and working with a lot of very cool people. The podcast will continue. It's not going anywhere. anywhere. I'm still going to be doing exclusive episodes and all of that good stuff. So don't have to worry about that. Mostly it affects us a bit on the back end. It'll be making it a little harder for us to do uh, live episodes. For example, I'm not going to be around to be able to do live Nintendo Direct watches anymore. Uh, well, maybe I can still do them. Oh, yeah, you could um, find a special guest and then figure out how to stream them. <laughs> oh, right. I got to do all that. All the technical stuff is usually handled on Cat's end. But uh, yeah, congratulations. You, I'm a... Uh... I think that's really great. You really deserve it. And I'm excited that you get to work with Matt because Matt was like one of the best news hounds in the industry as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I'm really excited to be working with Matt again. He was great. I taught him everything he knows. Not really, but you know, I can take <laughs> credit for everything. You, you can definitely take credit for some of that, but he seems to have kind of a natural talent going too. And last I checked, IGN needs more retro and RPG nerds on the staff. So Reb and I will be fighting the good fight. <laughs> Yeah, you, I'm sure you'll both fill that niche very, very appropriately. Uh, yeah, I'm glad for you, and I am excited to see how things go for you. And yeah, the podcast will continue. If anything, I might take on a little more editing work, and uh, but we'll we'll certainly make it work. It's uh, it's become so so beloved that I'm still shocked at how how big it's become in just a few months. Yeah, I mean. And it can work. Bob made Retronauts and Talking Simpsons work for a long time as a, a side hustle while he was working day jobs over at US Gamer. Now he's a full-time podcaster, but that's neither here nor there. In any case, I thank you so much for your support over the past few months. It has done a lot to cushion the landing from US Gamer. I mean, Nadia is still going to be devoted full-time 
to Acts of the Blood God on a, in addition to her various contract gigs. We're still going to be doing our community gatherings. They'll probably just be happening on the weekend, which will potentially make it easier for, say, our UK people to actually attend these events instead of doing them in the afternoon or whatever during the weekday. Yeah, thinking about it, a weekend is probably uh, better for everyone involved. Now, me, I don't care. My days are all a blur. I, I don't know what day it is half the time. So weekend, weekday, whenever you want, I'm available. All right, Nadia, we have plenty to discuss in this episode. We're going to be talking about Fantasian, which is now available on Apple Arcade. We have our first $50 patron topic, which is getting into new RPGs. And we will be talking about the news and wrapping up March Madness. If you enjoy the show, do us a favor. Go give leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. It brightens our day. And it helps the visibility of the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Sometimes I have been known to stream at twitch.tv slash TV. And we have a Patreon, if you haven't heard, which you've probably heard by now. Patreon.com slash bloodgodpod <laughs> with tons of exclusive content, including our Pantheon of the Blood God, which just went live for the month of April. It's System Shock 2, Nadia. That was a really fun discussion. And if you have not uh, donated at the $10 level, I certainly encourage you to do so. You can hear that discussion with myself, with Kat, and Jeff Green, I believe, was our guest. And we had a, a really good time. And he had a, a ton of insight for this, for this game. Uh, I had never played it before. And I got to play it for the first time. And uh, that's a very nope game in many ways if you're not a horror fan. Yeah, we also are playing Terra Enigma this month, which is more of a Nadia game. Yeah, that is certainly not a game. I am actually enjoying the uh, the the, pan, the sorry the game club. Just watching them kind of have questions about the game that are all answered as as things go on. Because you start underground and you start doing these five tower dungeons, which are quite short and in a way quite generic, and then. And then things really heat up, but a lot of people haven't ascended past that point, so to speak, so I won't say anything else. The Pantheon of the Blood God is available to all of our $10 subscribers, and for our $5 subscribers, there's our Witcher Watch, our 35th anniversary tribute to The Legend of Zelda, and coming this week, a special discussion with Brian Mitsoda, the narrative designer for games including Alpha Protocol and Vampire the Masquerade. We have a lot of great things to talk about when it comes to rpg design rpg history stories from black isle studios you won't want to miss it okay nadia before we get to the news tell me what is your offering to the blood god this week i am still playing quite a bit of monster hunter rise uh it looks like i am sticking with it and i was talking to my good friend leaf erickson about the game this this week on twitter and we were just kind of analyzing, like, even though both of us kind of bounced off Monster Hunter World, we were discussing what kept us on Rise. And for me, I think it's just the, even though the condensed maps don't have that really ecological, live, lived-in feel that they do in World, there is a certain convenience to them that is not in World. Like, you see your goal immediately on the map, you travel right there, you get, you do what needs to get done you're perfectly welcome to wander off the path as usual and, and collect what you want and hunt what you want. But just having that marked quest on that condensed map makes it so easy to say, okay, I'm going to hunt this monster before dinner. Okay, I'm done for now. I'll do whatever. Uh, although I did mention on Twitter that the 
the chick who does the the whole dongo thing like does she have to do that song and dance every single time and does, yes. she's gonna go crazy and she's gonna just like skewer a toddler in the in the dlc because i wouldn't blame her i would i'd be gone by now you could skip the songs you know yeah but i don't want to oh you're gonna watch the whole thing they are adorable the songs are adorable not gonna lie they're very very cute I, i'm happy to listen to them but i'm not the one singing them and doing the whole dance with the skewers and and the palicos and stuff i have also been playing a lot of monster hunter rise i have a regular group that i've been hunting with in the evenings and one of the things that stands out to me is i'm really grateful that they separated out the single player story and the multiplayer hunts a bit more because Mm -hmm. one of the most annoying things in monster hunter world was getting to a story quest and being like okay well i have to get through the cutscene, and then you can join in and it's all very awkward right it feels much more natural in the way that you can advance it doesn't feel like you're necessarily missing out on anything by having deliberate solo quests in this right no i i totally agree and that's a big help because there are you have a separate uh board for your solo quest you have a separate board for your uh, multiplayer quest i haven't done too many of the multiplayer quests yet but i don't feel pressured to and that's that makes a big difference as well what weapon have you been using, Nadia? Dual blades. Um, I've been toying around a little bit with the the bow and arrow, but I just find the dual blades a lot of fun to use. I've settled mostly on the switch axe and the bow. Yeah, you mentioned the switch axe in we were talking uh, in the last episode about the game when we reviewed it. Uh, seems like a lot of fun. So does the the hunter horn. Seems like a lot of fun as well. I was thinking on that, but it might be a little too complicated for me at this stage. They finally figured out how to make the hunter horn kind of cool, whereas previous games, nobody wanted to be the dang hunter horn. It was always at the bottom of the usage rates. <laughs> well, it gives buffs while it, while you hunt. Like you, there was a pic, there was a video I saw uh, of someone play, uh, of Jack Black playing like a toy saxophone and going nuts, and they put like the uh, hunter horn uh, uh, title over it, and then he just takes his uh, his little toy saxophone and starts beating things with it, and it's like, well, that's that's basically a hunter horn user. I finished Bravely Default 2 over the past weekend, Nadia. All three endings. All three endings. Holy crap. Congratulations. That's a that's quite an achievement, actually. Yeah, I got to the the first credit roll and I was like, oh, I don't have that much more to go. I'll just finish it this up over the weekend. And then I proceeded to spend three solid days playing basically nothing but but Bravely Default 2. And I had to do a lot of grinding. I had to grind mm. a solid like 15 levels in order to get to the final boss and even then i was still a little bit underpowered because they were kind of recommending level 65 for the wow. final boss fight and i was more like level 56 level 57 uh-huh. but i was able to beat the final boss in my first try anyway because i picked a lot of really overpowered job combinations so i was doing crazy amounts of damage i have uh the hellraiser job right whatever it's called and <laughs> I uh, I got the ability that lets you be able to break the 9,999 threshold. So Holy I was crap. doing like 25,000 damage uh, per hit against this boss. And it went down in relatively short order. I won't spoil the final encounter, but I do think it it's very good in that cheesy JRPG kind of way. And I was ultimately very satisfied with how the game ended. Like, I've always kind of yeah. been ragging on this game's story, but actually, by the end, I liked Bravely Default's 2's story. It's very classically JRPG. 
that's a good word for it. Just classically JRPG with a really crazy-ass battle system that's so much fun to exploit. I have not gotten to the end yet. Of course, I got distracted by Monster Hunter and I'm preparing for the 5.5 patch and Final Fantasy XIV. But yeah, I definitely want to go back to it and just continue toying around with those classes because it was so much fun. Hellraiser, I'm guessing, is kind of, I guess, their answer to Dark Knight. I, is it Hellblade I or Hellraiser? I don't know. Yeah. But there was a there was a Dark Knight class in, in the original Bravely Default, so. Yeah, in Bravely Default 2, the, I went with Hellblade and Vanguard. Um, That's I ended strong. up with White Mage and Spirit Master. Uh-huh. Um, Thief and Phantom, which lets you do the extremely OP God Speed Strike. Where you can uh-huh. just steal, you can do Godspeed Strike and then steal Spirit to replenish your MP immediately. Wow! And then I went with the Swordmaster Animal Tamer class because it seemed like it was going to be OP, but it was actually the one that I was most disappointed with. And I kind of wish that I had gone with a magical class instead with that because Adele looks really great. She looks really spiffy in that red mage costume with the red cloak and the boots. It's great. Red Mage always, always looks swag. Always, like in every single game. But I do still love that Beastmaster costume. It's so cute. My main thing is that I didn't like Elvis's costume as a phantom because he looks like a, a character. He looks like a cross between John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever and a Mortal Kombat character, like Sub-Zero. But you, the way you describe that sounds amazing. And now, now I have to look that up later. I want him to look cool. He looks cool as a ranger where he's wearing the cloak and the hood and everything. And I'm like, can I just have that look? No, he has to look like freaking John Travolta instead with the Sub-Zero mask. When he is a beast tamer, he has like Kitsune ears and, and a tail. It's very cute. Oh, I, I mean, Adele's, basically every single costume for Adele is beautiful. I love mm-hmm. all of Adele's costumes. I like all of Gloria's costumes. The boys look uniformly terrible. Except, um, no, they're cute. The main character, what, whatever his name is, Piratey Boy, he, <laughs> <laughs> that guy, <laughs> that guy, he uh, looks pretty good as a brave bearer. I do like that outfit. They do a great job with the costume designs in this game, but I really wanted to keep grinding once I finish Bravely Default 2 because there's a lot of it content be, be after the third time the credits roll, including, of course, multiple optional boss fights that are basically level 90 that unlock even higher job classes for all of the different job classes. Plus, I think there's a super secret boss at the end as well in multiple optional dungeons that I ended up running. And it's just like, oh, there's so much to do with this game. I have to go play something else now. They should have changed this game's name from Bravely Default 2 to this game was made for Cat. This game was made for Cat. It's true. Nadia, I see also that you've been playing Final Fantasy XIV in preparation for patch 5.5. Yes, patch 5.5 is uh, next next week. I forget what it's called, but it's very dire sounding. This is the patch that ends Shadowbringers, like the storyline, and brings us, brings us into the expansion, which is coming, I think, in the fall or the summer. I can't remember. Uh, uh, the trailer, which they launched last week at the time of this recording, just looks very fiery. And <laughs> there's implications that somebody is going to die, and I am going to be very sad. But Tiamat, one of the great dragons, is finally like out of her depression and looks like she's going to be kicking ass, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Yay, Tiamat. Good job, you. It's always hard to get out of depression, so I'm rooting for anybody who can do that. Yeah, Tiamat was basically the mate of Bahamut who destroyed 
Eorzea, and there's whole there's a whole lore behind that. It wasn't really her mate; it was like a shadow of him. But either way, she's really really upset about the fact that it happened. So she kind of exiled herself and uh, will not like refuse to to free herself, even though she can. So I guess she's just kind of said, "Okay, you know what? I'd better do something about uh, these." primals that are rampaging across the world and are very much based on Final Fantasy IV lore. And I am happy to see that. Because one bit of obscure Final Fantasy lore is that there are lunar versions of the summon monsters that you fight in the kind of extra chapter that you'd get in Final Fantasy IV Advance and Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection. Uh, Like Kane had to fight Lunar Bahamut, who's already been revealed. But it looks like the trailer also showed us like Lunar Auden, who I think uh, Cecil had to fight. And there was also like Lunar, I forget who, but Rydia had to fight them. So yeah, this is uh, going to be a very Final Fantasy IV connected expansion. I'm okay with that. Well, that's like one of your favorite Final Fantasies, so you're in good shape. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, story-wise, it's certainly one of my favorites because it's so simple and fun to play with. Indeed. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the RPG news. First item of business... BioWare has released detailed Mass Effect Legends changes. This is what Eurogamer had to say. Combat in Mass Effect 1, which was originally intended to mimic the randomness of a dice roll and pen and paper stat building, will, for instance, be significantly tweaked in Mass Effect 1 to increase accuracy and reduce frustration. It doesn't stop there, however. The original game will also gain a melee button, rebalanced abilities, faster weapon cooldowns, inventory management improvements, and the ability to sprint in and out of combat. BioWare also promises specific changes to encounters, enemies, and how players engage in combat in Mass Effect 1, all intended to bring the experience more in line with its sequel. So we were talking about this with Austin Walker uh, last month, maybe a month ago or two. And he was kind of talking about how he doesn't necessarily want to see the, the kind of the weird quirkiness of Mass Effect 1 sanded away for this, (laughs) for this remaster. But I think he's in the minority. I think so, because this is for people like me who have not played Mass Effect and really need to get off their ass and do it. And it's also for, we have to understand, and this is something I'm coming to terms with gradually, we are old. There is a whole generation behind us who has not experienced the games that shaped RPGs as we know them. So this is also for them. And I think that's okay. I understand the idea of certain quirkiness like, giving a game its personality. And when you, when you sand that away, I understand the feeling of, of being disappointed about that. But you fell in love with the quirkiness. The generation behind you might not. So they'll find their own things to fall in love with. Now, I know there are a lot of people who replay Mass Effect all the time and know the original inside and out. I will say this. When I played Mass Effect originally back in 2010, I played Mass Effect 1 and 2. When the PS3 version came out, I was like, you don't need to play the original Mass Effect. Like, just enjoy mm-hmm. the comic. It is like such a bear to play compared to Mass Effect 2. Mass Effect 2 was so much more fun. And that was my opinion at the time. So yeah. whenever yeah. I praise Mass Effect 1, it's always a little bit of revisionist uh, history in hindsight because I'm because at the time when I played the original Mass Effect, I was definitely overcoming its quirks in a lot of ways. I think we all have games like that where we love them, but then someone says, oh, I think I'll play it. Like, no, 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 you're fine. 
It's like me and Babylon 5. I'll be like, man, what a what an amazing TV show. People are like, I should watch it. So now, now it's on HBO Max. Or I'm like, I, I don't think you necessarily <laughs> need to watch it. Just appreciate it from afar. Appreciate distance. Watch it. Look up the best clips on YouTube and you're good. There are plenty of other changes coming to the Mass Effect Legendary Edition, including many changes to the way, for example, how Paragon and Renegade is being handled. They're really tightly integrating the DLC into the overall game which is good because a lot of the DLC was quite OP, especially in Mass mm-hmm. Effect 2, because EA wanted you to buy that dang D- DLC. So they're making yeah. it more balanced as a whole. It really is going to be the definitive edition of the series, and I appreciate it. Yeah, sounds good. That's what they need to get out, and that's what's coming out, and uh, I hope everybody likes it. I hope I like it. I assume that I, this is how we kind of generally want remakes to be, right? Because this is really a remake. They're really remaking it. Not from the bottom up. It's not going to be Unreal Engine 5 or whatever. But it is. they're trying to remaster in a way that how we see it in our mind's eye. As opposed Mm -hmm. to how it actually is. We remember so much of the Mass Effect experience being really smooth and really cool. And they're just trying to bring it more in line with that. Yeah, basically. Uh they're catering to the to the good parts of our memory about the game and, and kind of erasing the bad parts, hopefully. Speaking of erasing the bad parts, E3 2021 will be a free online-only event. It will be from June 12th to June 15th, Nadia, and it will be supported by companies including Nintendo, Xbox, Capcom, Konami, Ubisoft, Take-Two, Warner Brothers, and Coke Media. Fairly few details at the moment, but in one form or another, E3 will be back. I don't know how I feel about that. I guess suppose, well, I get to sit on my butt and watch watch uh, presentations. But I'm hoping that if uh, uh, Nintendo seems to be into it, hopefully we get a little bit of uh, Breath of the Wild 2 information. So uh, I'm there for that, if nothing else. I will be there for my employer, IGN, who will be probably doing their own event at some point. <laughs> That is going to be so strange. I kind of wish we could do that together. That would have been that would have been fun to do like a Nintendo event together. Oh, cat, mm. come back to me. <laughs> Alas, it it would have to be. No, cat, cat definitely needs a job. That's what we used to say about certain dogs when we were grooming them. And you'd have a dog that was like running around everywhere, and you'd have to tell them to sit because that dog needed a job. So you had to tell them to sit. You're a little bit like that. You need a job. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you're it's a it's a role you're suited for you are you're an editor through and through oh thank you i appreciate it it's true all right next item of business uh as of this podcast release this will be over but the diablo 2 resurrected technical alpha is happening over the weekend you can opt into it which i did so i get to play some resurrected diablo 2 over the weekend that'll be fun oh let me know how it is i'm looking forward to diablo 2 when it comes out were you a Diablo 2? So you were a Diablo 3 fan, not a Diablo yes. 2 fan. Uh, I got into Diablo with Diablo 3, and I'm curious to see how Diablo 2 compares. Diablo 2 is a, I would say, crunchier experience than Diablo 3 in many ways. Diablo 3 really went out of its way to, well, not only be cartoonier, it's way cartoonier than Diablo 2 or Diablo 4. But it also sanded down a lot of the kind of the depth and they ultimately brought it back. They brought back a ton of the death that was lost with Diablo 2. But I would say ultimately Diablo 2 is still the better experience. But 
mm. I will look forward to how you feel about it. Yeah, I am. I am primed to play it. A game that maybe I'm not primed to play is Square Enix's Outriders, which is now available. A lot of people describe it as Gears of Destiny. The only reason I'm <laughs> mentioning it on this RPG podcast is because, like a few, so many other games, they would say it's RPG adjacent. And also Square Enix released it. And it's okay, Nadia, when this game was first revealed, it was so generic, such a boring name, such a boring concept, such boring art. It was just hard to imagine that people would care, but it seems to have been surprisingly well received. And it's certainly doing a lot better than Avengers. Yeah, when I'm hearing about, when I first heard about Outriders, like in the in the modern sense, I was hearing a lot of complaints about how it's down and the servers weren't up. I'm like, Outriders, Outriders, why does that sound so familiar yet generic, as you said? And as time goes on, I am seeing people, more and more people really enjoy it. Um, good for them. When I think of Outriders, I think of The Outsiders, the book or the movie, whichever one you saw, you know, Stay Gold, Pony Boy, that one. We read that in school. Did you read that in school? I have no idea what you're talking about. You never read The Outsiders? Nope. You have to see the movie because it has like all the all these amazing stars as, as babies. And this is their first breakout movie, like Tom Cruise, Emilio Estevez. Like, oh man, it, classic. All the girls in my class had a huge crush on Pony Boy. Just, just nuts. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, that's what I think of when I think about Riders. Is Pony Boy staying gold? You know what? I would play that game before I played Outriders. <laughs> I would I would play a freaking out, Outsiders RPG in two seconds. You don't even understand. Essie Hinton is still on Twitter. I'm going to like tweet to her. And she's going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? Because she's kind of a half hermit now. <laughs> she doesn't know, doesn't know anything about anything. So <laughs> that's going to be great. Anyway, no disrespect to fans of Gears of Destiny. It's just not a game that's really a kind of game that I want to play. But no, I'm no, glad other I people definitely. are enjoying it. <laughs> I'm very happy other people are enjoying it. I'm always happy to see people enjoying an RPG, especially since, as you said, Avengers did not do so well. So this is a nice little recovery for Square Enix. Uh, if you are an Outsiders fan, though, stand up because I am totally supporting you. I would say that Square Enix kind of needed this win, not because it mm. was in any imminent trouble, but its Western division has always been kind of up and down in a lot of ways. And Avengers was kind of a bust. More than yeah. kind of a bust. Uh, Avengers was able to pick up a little bit with the release of the Hawkeye content because it that was fairly well received and a lot of people were going in. I think there was a free weekend as well on some major platforms, so a lot of people were playing Avengers for the first time. But Outriders has already blown away the opening for Avengers. So despite some technical problems, which is kind of to be expected with a game like this, with servers and whatnot, uh, Outrider seems to be off to a good start. In time, Avengers might have a recovery. It's a, it, it's basically an evergreen property at this point. So if Square Enix can kind of, I don't think they necessarily have to a realm reborn it, but maybe put more advertising into it, more action, more fun. They might, they might have something at the end. Well, I haven't played Avengers, but everything I've heard about it is that the story is good, but the evergreen content is very bad mm -hmm. so crystal dynamics has to go and really focus on that part of the game and make the end game content the content that people actually want to play through good yeah i think they can do it given time but we'll see if they do it or not 
continuing on the Square Enix beat, The World Ends With You is getting an anime, Nadia, as you may recall. It airs in Japan tomorrow, as of this recording, so on Friday. And incidentally, the anime's theme song was re-recorded after the band's drummer was arrested for an unspecified scandal. Ooh. Yeah, the band's name is Ali. It stands for Alien Something Something. I forget what exactly. Uh, the drummer was caught in some sort of scandal, and they had to re-record the whole, the whole opening. So that's uh, quite a debut for this anime. Kind of reminds me of what happened to Judgment, where one of mm-hmm. the voice actors was reco- arrested on a drug charge or something like that, and they ended up completely junking his original voice recording. I think they... Didn't they junk his face as well because they were using it? Probably. And yeah, it was it was a drug charge. I remember now. I don't think Japan is very friendly towards drug charges. Absolutely not. When I was uh, when I was working for a English teaching school in Japan, there was a massive drug bust where like eleven foreign teachers were busted with drugs. Basically, they raided the house, found somebody's phone, accessed it. And were able to round up all of the people that they were selling drugs to. It was just pot and that kind of thing. They all ended up in jail and it was a ma- massive nationwide scandal. Holy crap. They ended up in jail. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You get you get jailed or deported if you get uh, even a minor drug charge in Japan. It's very harsh over there. I was actually, when I went to Japan, I have I had painkillers for my fibromyalgia. And I was like paranoid about even bringing those in like prescription but uh, they didn't search my luggage or anything. So I was actually surprised at how easygoing Japan's uh, border guards were. Cause they were just like, yeah, uh, go, look at my passport. I'm good. Cause after going to America, like America, they grill the hell out of you. Even if you're Canadian. Coming into American customs is like walking into prison. It really, really is. And it's, I, it's funny. Cause I remember a time when you could just like, as a Canadian flash your birth certificate and they'd be like, yep, yeah, you're good. Come on in. But uh, as you can imagine that changed after a certain date. The Vancouver border crossing, it's just a lot of very nice looking people wearing border patrol outfits. They're like no nonsense. If you have Mm -hmm. any, even a tiny problem, they will totally deny you entry and then you'll never be able to go to Canada again. But in America, they're like, get down on the ground. We're going to frisk you. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. They're not actually like that, but they really glare at you. It's. The American border crossing is designed to make you feel extremely unwelcome. Whereas yes. if I go to Europe or something, it it feels like it's made to feel very welcome. Yeah, um, I've I've had American border guards tell me, like, give me your proof of address. I was like, I don't have proof of address on me. What do you think I carry, like, my bills around with me? It, they can be pretty scary sometimes. Incidentally, Nadia, Neo, The end, World Ends With You. That's the sequel. It's coming out this year. It's set three years after the world ends with you animation. So it's a little piece of information for you. So I guess we got to watch it. Got to watch the anime. Yeah, we should watch the anime and talk about it on Axe the Blood God as part of our exclusive episodes. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. I like that idea. Let's do it. Let's do it. We're, we're, we're actually doing our like Lord of the Rings thing, too. So Yay, Summer of the Rings. Can't wait. Summer of the Rings. That's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. Okay, Nadia, final item of business last week we recorded and then like three hours after we recorded fantasian came out on apple arcade it just dropped out of nowhere yeah you're like okay cool let's get going i literally woke up from a nap and i checked twitter and i had like a bunch of people signaling me saying hey hey look what's out hey 
what the hell is this? I've never even heard of a game, especially that anticipated, just dropping suddenly out of the sky like that. Like, what a what a surprise. I didn't even have an iPad at that point. I had to order an iPad. What kind of iPad did you get? Like an Air 2 or something like that. Oh, nice. You got the same iPad that I did. Yay! Good, good, good. You, good. Nadia, miss money bags just going, oh, I'm going to play Fantasia. Better order an iPad. <laughs> just write it off as a tax. Uh... <laughs> oh, there <laughs> you go. <laughs> See, Nadia knows how to play the game. I've been at the game for too long. Well, I started playing Fantasian just a little bit because I happen to still have a Apple Arcade free trial. And my first thought when I started playing Fantasian was that it reminded me a little bit of a turn-based near Automata, at least in terms of the character designs with the white hair and everything and the very stark look to the opening area and your little robot buddy and everything. Yeah, definitely, definitely some uh, near Automata vibes here. Leo, I think the main character's name is, looks a lot like 2B, uh, just without the blindfold. Yes, which, hey, I, I think that is an attractive look it runs very well and looks very good on the ipad the opening area i think kind of belies how great the backgrounds mm -hmm. get as you move further into the game the initial area is a little bit generic it's not that interesting and then it gets absolutely gorgeous and that is where most of the attention is focused nadia yeah i noticed as soon as i entered the first town Wow, this is this is Sakaguchi recalling Final Fantasy VII and how he they put so much care into those those environments, which is one of the things I love about Final Fantasy VII, where every room is different, every object just looks like it belongs in its place. The characters are just acting along to whatever, like if they're in a, if they're in an inn, they're drinking or sleeping or whatever. And yeah, it gives me major major Final Fantasy VII vibes, except it's all in a diorama form instead of just polygons, and that just makes it even cooler. The battle system is relatively simple. It's a turn-based battle system, but it uses kind of the area of effect uh, mm. mechanics that you see in a lot of games where, for example, you'll use an attack and then you'll guide the little arrow that yeah. hits multiple enemies at a time because it it this has been a, become a popular thing with a lot of RPGs because they want to make you feel like you have some level of control over the action that's happening. Reminds me a lot of Chrono Trigger's uh, area of effect attacks and how they varied because, yes, there is an early uh, attack where you can... It, it's very much like Chrono Slash where you, you have that straight line that goes through enemies if you're lucky, if they if they're happen to be set up in the right way. But unlike Chrono Trigger, they don't really move around the battlefield that I've seen, so you don't really have that that opportunity to change up your strategy as necessary. But um, does this game have any controller support at all? I could not get my, my controller to work with it. It does. What you have to do is you have to sync your uh, Xbox Series X controller or Xbox One controller with the iPad's Bluetooth controls. And so all you have to do really is just have it start doing a discover and it will pop up on the Bluetooth menu. And then you can add the controller to your iPad and it'll work perfectly with the, the game. That's funny because that's what I did. And I tried it in the game and it just would not work. And hmm. the thing that it's not so bad when you're battling, but I really hate using my finger to move around everywhere. Like that just drives me up the wall, especially when you when you tap, okay, Leo, I want you to go here. It makes a sound and it goes tink, tink, tink every time. And it's so unnecessary and it's so cumbersome. 
And that's the one major complaint I have about the game. But if I can find a way to pair my stupid controller with it, that'll take away one grievance I have. But another grievance I kind of have is that as gorgeous as these environments are, I find there's a quite a low time going on. Oh, really? And this is with the newest iPad, too. Yeah, yeah. It's strange, isn't it? I don't remember the load times being all that bad, but maybe it gets worse as you move further into the game. I don't know. It's just there seems to be a, a big delay like in between getting into battles, getting out of battles, going into environments, going out of environments. Maybe I was just tired and I was noticing it more. I don't know. It's a, it's a good-looking game, so it's probably really taxing that iPad. Yeah, yeah. I am definitely looking forward to seeing this on Switch especially because I feel like it's it's such a, a basic RPG, yes, but so interesting. Like I, I'm already really in love with it, and I'm so glad to see Sakaguchi made this, and it feels like a return to what he loves to do, especially as I mentioned that the way he, he kind of gets back to directing the way he did Final Fantasy VII. But it's such a weird platform to put it on. I just want everyone to experience this game, and they're making it a bit hard. I don't think we should discount Apple Arcade, per se. For one thing, I'm sure that they threw a bunch of money at Sakaguchi, and he's like, oh, let's make a game for it. And also, he's liked mobile games better than traditional consoles for a while now, so it's not surprising that he was making a game uh, for Apple Arcade. Uh, I will say that once I was able to get my controller working with the iPad, it felt like a much more viable platform to me. And that's probably mm. because I have traditional console gamer brain me and <laughs> I'm probably just biased against mobile platforms in general. But it's actually really nice to be able to set up my iPad and turn on my controller and have my Bluetooth headphones and all of that and be playing a game like Fantasian on that absolutely gorgeous screen, which is much better than the Nintendo Switch screen. Yeah, absolutely. 100% better than Nintendo Switch screen. I will agree with you there. If I can get my controller paired up, I don't know why it's being a, a, a so-and-so. Maybe it's just, I, I did have a lot of hard, uh, I did have some trouble setting up this iPad in the first place. Like it came with iOS 9 and I had to update. So that was giving me some trouble, but I got it to work and I'm sure, I'm sure I got the controller to work. I'm just, I'm just a, a dumb old person who doesn't know how to technology. So I'll get there. Well, Nadia, there aren't too many reviews yet, probably because of the sudden release and uh, the fact that it's on Apple Arcade as opposed to a traditional console. However, the scattered impressions have definitely been positive. Pocket Gamer says, Fantasian is a classic RPG at its core with plenty of new tricks and a fresh art style to keep it relatable in the age of AAA cinematic experiences. And Digitally Downloaded says, On every level, Fantasian is aware of itself and also confident that there's still people out there that love the classic qualities of older JRPGs in such a way that they can deliver. Twitter buzz is good. I saw that Kotaku was raving about the, the actual art style of this game. So people seem to be into it. Yeah, I have seen nothing but positive buzz about this game and positive. The few reviews that are on Metacritic are very positive. User reviews, even though we know how those can be kind of like a little bit uh, tampered with have always been positive and I'm pretty sure they're all sincere. So yeah, absolutely. If you have a machine that can play it, I cannot recommend this game enough. Just good luck getting your controller to pair with it. That's all. <laughs> Interesting thing about this game. Only part one is out right now. Part yes. two is coming later this year, supposedly. Apple Arcade loves to do that. And sometimes to the game's detriment, I don't, I can't say it's going to happen to Fantasian, but 
Shantae, the latest Shantae game felt a little fragmented because it came out in parts. And I love Shantae, but the latest one, even though I did enjoy it, felt a little bit uh, jagged, I suppose is the word for it, because it came out in parts on Apple Arcade and then it came to consoles. So I'm not a big fan of the multiple part release things they have going on with Apple Arcade. On the other hand, I can't complain because we're waiting on Final Fantasy Remake Part 2. Yeah, I don't love splitting games into multiple parts again side-eyeing final fantasy remake part two especially when we don't know anything about what's coming at least we could say fantasian part two is supposed to come sometime this year no specified date but it should be along final fantasy remake part two god knows the problem with splitting a game into multiple parts is on the one hand if you tell people oh it's only part one it makes them maybe less likely to pick it up because they'll go, well, I want to wait until the full game is out. And then the full game comes yes. on. They're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this game. And yeah, whatever. There are other games that I can be playing. And then there are and then there are the other people who finish part one and are like, that was fun. I'll play part two when it comes out. And then they just never return to it. Yeah. I mean, what happens if Fantasian part two drops the way part one did and we're all in the middle of something else and it's just like, oh, well, I want to play you, but priority has to go to these new games that haven't nobody knows anything about yet there's always something like a 50 percent drop off of players for part two of a game like i'm betting that final fantasy 7 remake part two is going to be like half the size of final fantasy 7 remake part one at least in terms of sales unless unless square enix is really able to truly make it a thing like ff7 remake part one was very well received but part two is going to feel like even less of a standalone release than ff7 remake part one there will be plenty of people are like well i've got to play remake part one before i get to remake part two Mm -hmm. and then they just never do yeah exactly as you said they wait around for the you know inevitable final edition to come out or they just drop off completely i think square enix uh, if anyone has a chance to kind of maintain that buzz it's them with final fantasy 7 remake 2 because the game is still extremely memeable and i still see like gifs all the time and information on twitter like cloud getting that kiss from jesse and he looks like such a dork he looks like some virgin has ever been kissed before and he probably hasn't and it was really cute nadia is it possible that as somebody who follows a lot of final fantasy accounts you're seeing a lot of ff7 remake memes because Mm -hmm. of that i guess it's possible yeah but i also see what other people like and i guess a lot of my friends like final fantasy 7 as well really a lot of your friends like final fantasy 7 tell me more nadia or not I am there's shocked. always 10 to 1, like 2 is going to come out and it's going to be a whole lot of Twitter buzz because it's, the store is going to be do something really stupid and complex. and Everyone's going to be like, what? And one way or another, it'll stay in the news for that reason. The broader story is that Hironobu Sakaguchi, Nobuo Uematsu, you have been missed. We, mm-hmm. Your presence, your lack of presence in the JRPG space over the past decade has very much been felt and it is so wonderful to have you two back even for a short amount of time maybe you're planning to retire at some point in the future but if this is a last hurrah i'm really glad that we got it yeah me too and um i think this i have heard this is this is nobu yomatsu's last full soundtrack but who knows um i'm just glad to see that they both got together for this last game if it's their last game and uh they kind of killed it All right, we will be playing more Fantasian and probably talking about it during our weekly What We've Been Playing updates. But for now, let's continue on to the main topic, getting into 
new RPGs. Don't go away. Hey RPG fans, it's your friend Cat Bailey, host of Axe of the Blood God, and I'm here to tell you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Every single month we have exclusive RPG goodness for all of our listeners, including tributes to classic games, watches of shows like The Witcher, and of course our Pantheon of the Blood God, in which we explore classic RPGs from Final Fantasy VIII to Skies of Arcadia. Here's a glimpse of what you have been missing. Sword isn't my favorite game in the series, not by a long shot, but it has a lot of great temples. And the name of this yeah. one escapes me, maybe you guys can help. Um, so it's a water-based temple, but when you go down underground, there's this undead labyrinth. And it's such a great contrast between like the, the, the heavens and the hell. And it's, it's just, it's like no other Zelda dungeon I've played through before. Um, the, 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 the puzzles are clever. It feels like an adventure. Like it, it's it, it's less than just going through room to room. It's more of just a, a big puzzle box that kind of fits all into one hole. Uh, it's the ancient. I can't remember the name of it. I know what you mean in that, like uh, with uh, Scoured Swords dungeons being somehow so memorable yet so forgettable. It's the strangest thing because I'm thinking of not just that dungeon, but also there was one that. You have a time orb, and you're sailing through a, a yes. sea of sand, and you have like a, a radius around it where you can see the past, or there was the future, one or the other. And so you're sailing on water and seeing like a lush forest around you while you're going through this wasteland, and that's part of this the puzzle that's involved. And there were just such... I'm actually really excited to revisit those dungeons, because I feel like we, we did get wrapped up in how linear Skyward Sword is, and the, the motion controls aren't great. And at the same time, we missed out on really praising some dungeons that deserved it yeah they were really elaborate they were they were there, there was one puzzle in, in, in the one that you're describing the sand shifting one there's one that i really yes. liked where there's this one room where like it kind of breaks the rules of how dungeons are meant to work because there's this ceiling um that just has these little grates in there and what you're meant to do is you're meant to shoot an arrow through the grate into another dungeon room and hit a time crystal within the boundaries of that other room so you're breaking the loading zone, which is something like you're not really taught to ever do. So when you when yes. that moment clicks with you, it's just like, whoa, this is this is really clever. That was a special look at some of our patron exclusive content. If you want to hear more, head on over to Patreon.com/slash/BloodGodPod. Now back to the episode. Okay, Nadia, this is our first ever $50 patron topic. So to review, if you are a $50 supporter or a $100 supporter, Dang. you will be able to choose a topic to be on the show after supporting us for four months. And we have now been a Patreon for four months, Nadia. That's remarkable. Wow. Time it really flies. It's crazy. And all of our $50 and $100 patrons stuck with us. Thank you so much. So we're going to Thank have... you. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. That's uh, not insignificant outlay of resources. 
but hey, you get to choose the topic for an episode. And this one is from $50 patron Jay Chow, who writes, if I can suggest a topic, it's how do you guys approach understanding and or learning to play a new RPG? The reason is I'm often overwhelmed by the number of systems, particularly in new JRPGs. I'm really impressed when folks on Reddit are like, oh, X buff is way better than Y ability and Z armor is totally worthless. I'm always like, how do you know? So my question is, as RPG experts, how do you go about learning a new game and sussing out the skills in terms of what, what matters and what doesn't? Do you try different combinations of skills and abilities and take them on and off? Do you actually track the impact? Do you go with your gut? Do you watch Let's Plays or Reddits? Or do you go full min-max with a spreadsheet? Nadia, I'm going to guess that you do not go full min-max with a spreadsheet. Though, if maybe there are hidden deaths to you. I do not know. Thank you so much for your support, Jay Chow. This is actually a really great question because even though I am a quote-unquote JRPG expert, I also find myself extremely overwhelmed very easily by new systems and stuff like that. And that may be a good reason why I tend to stick with what I know to a fault. But that doesn't mean I don't try to break out. And there are instances where I was scared to break out, but I did. And I really came to to love the game in the end. Um, most relevant game to talk about this, I suppose, would be Skyrim. I, at that point, was not any sort of a JRPG, sorry, any sort of a Western RPG gamer. But all my friends were playing Skyrim. And I just was like, uh, well, okay, I'll download it. I'll, I'll, I'll dabble in it and see if I like it. And it was so alien to me, so foreign, how open it was and how uh, after that first scene with uh, Alduin destroying everything, you're just on your own. And this, this guy who helped you out is like, okay, I'm going to go over there now. You do what you want. Meet me in White Rim if you want. Uh, I think it was White Rim. Yeah, that was the town. And I was just like, ah. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea about the even like skill tree seemed so alien to me. But I stuck with it, and I think it's because I had a really good friend at the time who convinced me, just saying there is no wrong way to play this game. I was like, what's the best weapon to use? There is no best weapon. He's like, I use, I use the sword and board. You pick up whatever feels comfortable to you. So yeah, and I'm like, okay, well, I'll try the bow and arrow. I got proficient with it. I got confident with it. I started to slowly understand the systems by actually sitting and reading what they said like in the game because I admit I'm bad at skipping through all that. And I started to really just kind of fall in love with this uh, the, the province of Skyrim and the idea that I could travel the world. And this I had to convince myself, this is not a JRPG. This is not what you were familiar with, but that's okay. You can break out. You can, you can go wherever you want. And you know, enemies, I think, in that game scale up according to how strong you are. So it's not that hard to go a little bit beyond your borders and, and see what's next. And just, I got used to the idea of having a, a list of things I needed to do in addition to the main quest. And eventually that's what I had to convince myself of. There is no wrong way to play this game. And that's what it comes down to with a lot of these games that look complex. Um, Final Fantasy XIV was a game I was afraid to enter because as Kat can probably attest, you're, you're hit with like walls of text and what to do. And here's, Here's this and that and this and that. In that instance, and I think this is true for a lot of these complicated modern games, by that point, there was a really, really solid community online. And day by day, online community gets better and better and better. Final Fantasy XIV and Monster Hunter are particularly known to have pretty friendly 
uh, communities that just want people to participate in their game. So they will help you in two seconds flat if you need it. Our Discord is a great example. Our Final Fantasy XIV Discord is always open for questions. Uh, if you if I tweet a question about Final Fantasy XIV or Monster Hunter, I'll, I'll get an answer right away, and it'll always be friendly and helpful. And if all else fails, if I see something, no matter how stupid the question is or how basic it is, if I Google it, I will find someone on Reddit who has asked the same question. So I will get that answer right away. And I to kind of go a little bit deeper into the systems factor, I just don't concern myself with with the systems. I Am I making the monster hurt? Then I am doing something right. I am doing the right thing. Uh, if hopefully nobody yells at me and <laughs> calls me stupid. I'm good. So I just kind of free myself. I, I get into another frame of mind when I'm trying something new, something systems loaded. One of the problems with the RPG genre, I think, is that there's a huge gatekeeper element. And mm-hmm. the reason I bring this up is when you mentioned being nervous about jumping into Skyrim, but being able to get into it, my first thought was, oh, Skyrim, it doesn't have any death to it. Skyrim's for babies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, maybe it is for babies, but that's fine. That's what I I'm got sorry, into. Nadia, I'm sorry, not- That was really mean, but it was definitely a lot less complex than Morrowind. But that was a huge reason for its success because mm-hmm. Skyrim not only was it gorgeous and a lot of people are like oh Skyrim is much more of a generic fantasy world compared to Morrowind or even Oblivion I'm like well yeah but it's pretty it is a pretty pretty world and there's a reason that so many games followed in its footsteps and because climbing high snowy mountains to talk to dragons that's freaking cool but that's also as awesome as it gets but also Skyrim was just really, really accessible in many ways and was really good at making you feel like you were able to step into that world pretty quickly, even without having to read any guides or go on YouTube or whatever and feel good about yourself. And yeah, that's why I think Skyrim was able to capture so many new fans and be as successful and big as it ultimately was. Yeah, going back to what we were talking about with Mass Effect and how you have this one generation that loves the quirkiness, but you have this whole generation that has no idea why it's so important. It's almost the same deal with, uh, say, Skyrim, which really brought a lot of console gamers into open-world RPGs, something PC gamers have been experiencing for years beforehand. So yeah, of course, there's that kind of a little bit of contempt when console gamers come in and are like, wow, this is so cool. And the PC gamers are like, oh, well, we've had this forever. What are you talking about? But it still stands that someone like myself who is not familiar with this open world Western RPG, I got my chance to get it to access it easily. Cause of course Skyrim was on everything and it was, it ran great on, well, the Xbox, not so much on the PS3, but that was a big thing for me. I mean, of course we still had oblivion, I think on Xbox one or I can't remember what system it was on. We it did on have the Xbox previous 360. Okay. We did have previous, open-world RPGs on consoles, but something about Skyrim felt so accessible to those of us using a controller that it it, it became so important to people like myself, a.k.a. the console trash. I think Oblivion was where that type of game really, truly took off. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, by the way. Oh, my God. Things have to stop being old. 15th. 15th anniversary, not 25. (laughs) Oh, oh, Jesus. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> That's still bad. but I think it's Daggerfall. It's more like 25. But That makes a little more sense. 
Yeah, I remember when Oblivion came out and it just immediately grabbed people with how gorgeous it was. And Oblivion itself was much more accessible than Morrowind in a lot of ways, but also kind of grindy, a lot of generic portals in that game. So I will say that one of the reasons that Dragon Quest was immediately successful, and I think we talked about this on our RPG Pioneers podcast, Mm -hmm. was that not only did it have really fun and accessible art, is that the game itself, it was rather brilliant in how if you didn't want to grind, you could basically customize the difficulty to your tastes. It could be very hard, or you could just keep grinding and eventually get powerful enough to beat the final boss. But even while, though it's a fairly finicky and old school RPG by today's standards, by the standards of its time, it was extremely easy to pick up and play, which I think is a huge reason that it captured the imaginations of so many people in Japan at the time. Yes, Dragon Quest is, at the time, was all about accessibility. There was uh, dungeons were top down, so you could see where you're, where you're going. You didn't really need to map them on, like, say, wizardry. Uh, the computer handled all the calculations. And, of course, Dragon Quest, to this day, is built on that accessibility. Dragon Quest Eleven is an extremely easy game to pick up and play. And going back to what I was saying earlier about Western RPGs versus Japanese RPGs, I think a lot of Japanese RPGs are, of course, modeled after Dragon Quest and have that, not exactly lin- linearity or handholding, but they, they keep you on a path. They let you know what you need to do next. They're not extremely open, at least not like in the olden days. But yeah, so that's probably why I always felt a little bit more safe and comfortable in the confines of a JRPG where I was so familiar with the genre and its tropes that I knew I, I could walk through it with my eyes closed. Like, for example, gosh, like Fantasian. Are you reading the help menus? Because I'm not. I'm just like, da, 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 da. I don't need to because I know how it works. It actually reminds me a lot of Final Fantasy VII. Even exactly. down to the opening area kind of looks like the Mako reactor from Final Fantasy VII. And the first boss that you're fighting reminds me of the Scorpio, Scorpion bot. And it's teaching yeah. you how to use the defensive mechanics and everything. That is like purely from the Final Fantasy playbook. But Final Fantasy VII was great because it dumped you straight into a really classic intro, as we've discussed in previous episodes. And it did a good job of kind of holding your hand as you got to grips with the battle system. And the battle system itself was very easy to understand in terms of how to slot the materia. But, you know, there are hidden deaths to it, obviously, between Chocobro breeding and coming up with broken combinations of materia and all of that. But Final Fantasy VII, much more so than its successor, Final Fantasy VIII, was just immediately accessible in a way that people really appreciated. Yeah, and I think that's one of the major reasons for its success is because it was it is one of the easiest Final Fantasies to, to grok by far. Um, and it uh, it came west, and it was the first RPG to really make a huge, huge splash over here. And the people who stuck with it are like, oh, I understand these mechanics very well. And those of us who were kind of gatekeepy jerks, as you said, were like, like oh, this me. game is... Me too. At the time, I was like, "This is so simple." Like, you had so much customization going on in Final Fantasy VI by comparison with the Espers, and the uh, second half of the game is totally open. You have no idea where to go, and that was the fun of it. And Final Fantasy VII, to me, just seems so much more babyish. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we, we're we're all kind of jerks, and try not to let that get you down when you're trying to get into a new game, as spicy and and like kind of crotchety as we seem. We're not so bad. I like to see people enjoy new games. 
Well, Daddy, I'm going to make an admission. I spent a lot of time on guides. Like when I was playing Bravely Default 2, I basically lived on the guides from game eight, which is kind of almost a wiki-ish type strategy Mm -hmm. site, but tends to be really good about being able to surface strategies in a very accessible way with a lot of bullet points. Um, I was also reading a lot of the Attack of the Fanboy guides because they did a really good job. An RPG site, our pals at RPG site, they all did a really good job of telling me kind of the best classes to pursue and the best, the most broken builds. That's not for everybody, but I have no compunction whatsoever about using whatever is OP because when I'm using OP attacks, that just makes me feel good. I It <laughs> produces warmth and happiness in my heart when I'm able to uh, put together a particularly broken build. And I don't mind having other people tell me what that particularly broken got build is. I am yes. definitely not a mid-maxing spreadsheet person. I don't use spreadsheets in general in my daily life. Numbers have always scared me a little bit, which makes my love of RPGs a little ironic, I think. Yeah, I had to calculate. Like, I mix up numbers all the time, and I love RPGs. I don't understand myself. Yeah, math was my total bugbear when I was in school. So it's funny that I spend a lot of time reading through for example, advanced stats when I'm following baseball or digging into individual like stack growth and Pokemon or whatever, because <laughs> in my daily life, I freaking hate math. No, math is my guaranteed F. I just, uh, I don't know, one side of my brain went entirely to language and the other side just like entropy or something. When it comes to finding really good info on how to get good at a game, I tend to avoid the large site except IGN. I strongly recommend that you go check out their wonderful <laughs> Oh wikis. no, it begins. <laughs> um, I like Reddit a lot because yes. I find that the people who put together the guides there, A, tend to go a lot deeper because they're intimately familiar with the game. And also you can learn a lot just by reading what people are saying in the individual threads. And if you read enough threads, eventually, pretty quickly, you'll start to see a lot of commonalities start to Mm -hmm. emerge in terms of strategies. And that can give you a really good feel for the dun-dun-dun metagame. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah, I have to say that um, Reddit and Discord, in particular, have been godsends for getting into games that seem overwhelming at first. I highly recommend, especially Reddit, as you said, there are just people out there who put together these stat tables for the hell of it because they want you to enjoy the game. They want you to, it probably feels good to them too to do it. So they're there for you to enjoy. And even though Reddit has not the greatest reputation on earth, it's an extremely great resource for really in-depth games that are full of stats and stuff. I also find that certain streamers are an amazing source for information. For example... Like Pharaoh for Final Fantasy fourteen, like they produce really high level content, new and interesting strategies. They're constantly telling you what's happening in the news and everything. And just watching them play gives you a really good sense of how the game can be played at a pretty high level. And then you can kind of follow their example. Yeah, like especially a game like 14, where there are so many ways to customize your character and so many rotations you can do. It's really handy to, well, here's the thing. If you feel, myself, if I feel like I'm doing the damage that I want to do and I feel like, okay, I'm strong enough, I'm good. 
But if I feel like something's missing, something I could feel like I'd be administering more of a bite here. That's when I go to, say, a Final Fantasy XIV subreddit, which is incredible, by the way, and I look up the rotations that people like. And not everyone has the same rotation, but they certainly have moves that they favor. And that's, as Kat said, you can get that commonality, you get that thread, and you start to understand what works. So there is, long story short, for intimidating games, there often is a little bit of study involved, but it can be quite fun. The problem is, the flip side, I think, is that these kinds of resources can kind of poison my brain. Because mm. I will become so focused on the meta and what the optimal builds are that I stop thinking for myself. And sometimes it can be helpful for me to just relax and not worry as much and then just try and find the approaches and the strategies that work for me rather than trying to adhere strictly to what everybody tells me works. And sometimes when I let go and I feel the force, I can start to, <laughs> I, I can find my way into a flow that works a lot better than for me, rather than trying to put myself, you know, into a box that people insist that I have to be in. Yes. One thing that is extremely important to remember in all these cases, it's okay to die. It is okay to die and to learn from your death. Uh, good luck if you're playing a roguelike, I'm sorry, but <laughs> for the most part, it's okay to die. It's okay to learn a lesson and go back and do do better the next time, hopefully. It's very much the case for Pokemon, I think, because if you read sites like Smogon, you're going to find so many strategies. Mm. You're going to learn what the actual competitive metagame is and everything. And the problem is, if you go too heavily into the metagame, people will know what you're doing right they'll look at you yes. and they're like oh they're bringing out this saying yeah they're fully meta i know how to counter that the people yes. who are the most successful at online and at tournaments and this goes for games like hearthstone as well are the people who are anti-meta the people who know the meta so well that they're able to come up with counters and then stop whatever that meta strategy is before the meta player knows how to do it. Like they're the people who can beat the blindly meta people. Um, and I would, I've always said that there are three types of people. There are the people who make the meta, who understand the game so well that they're able to identify the best strategies right away and create the optimal builds for that strategy. They're the people like me who follow, who blindly follow the meta and then there are the anti-meta people who are like, eh, screw that. Or like they come up with the wacky builds where like they're going, I don't even care about the meta. I'm going to find the weirdest, weakest thing that everybody hates. And I'm going to make that into the super, something super strong. Like a famous example was in Pokemon where they brought out a, uh, an electric squirrel, which ended up dominating everything. That was fan That's fantastic to watch. I was still on YouTube because he had... The Pachis, what's the, what do they call the Patches the root? Uh, I can't Pachirisu remember the name. or something like that. Yeah. They're one of the Poke, they're one of the the Pikachu clones that it was like a garbage Pokemon nobody cared about. And he just came out and slayed like God, like like Salamence and uh garbage and just like all these like highly evolved meta Pokemon that you always, always see in the competitions. And he just did it by eating berries. Just certain berries that he ate just totally destroyed the meta. And it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. It was fantastic. I find that those are the kinds of people who spend a lot of time with damage calculators 
and have a kind of an intuitive grasp of which which abilities are going to synergize really well with each other. And then they are able to come up with a viable build. I do not spend a lot of time with spreadsheets or damage calculators, which is one reason that I end up following a lot. I'm a, I'm a very much a follower in a lot of these instances when it comes to strategy. But at the same time, when I'm playing Pokemon, I do not go purely meta because I won't use Pokemon that I don't like. If it's ugly... <laughs> I'm the same way. <laughs> like, there's this giant jellyfish guy. He's like a ghost jellyfish who was a really good tank, I think, in Gen 5, Gen 6. I can't remember what it was. And I didn't like that guy. He was ugly. Same with Blissey. I never use Blissey. I hate it. I hate Blissey. Blissey's, Blissey's weird. Skarm Bliss, Skarmory and Blissey were the Ultima meta co- combination for, uh, for defense. Like, they were the defensive core. And I would not Armory's use awesome. them because I hated Blissey so much. <laughs> That's the good thing about Final Fantasy XIV. The only meta, as they say, the meta game is the glamour and fishing. Mm-hmm. That's all you have to worry about. <laughs> uh, of course, some people who are really, really like into that numbers-based competition, DPS, 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 that's when they kind of defect and go to World of Warcraft when the, when the story content is done for the time. And the rest of us are just like, oh, I'm just going to make myself look pretty. My cat boy's cute. My cat boy has like, has custom armor that I dyed dragon and blue. And I never thought I'd get into like fashion, but here I am. I will say that there are plenty of very accessible RPGs out there, Nadia. Games like Chrono Trigger, KOTOR, Dragon mm-hmm. Quest, very accessible. I mean, Witcher 3, I would argue, even though it looks kind of complicated, not that complicated, ultimately. If you just play through it and kind of pay attention to the tutorials, you'll be fine because they are meant to capture the, I, I hate using this term, lowest common denominator, whatever, like the broadest <laughs> the broadest swath of fans yeah. that they can possibly get. And it does. It, it was extremely successful, obviously. Yeah, no, it was very successful at that. Like I was able to figure, Witcher 3, it's very intuitive. You could just go, oh, I have a gem. Oh, it makes my damage go up. Cool. I guess I'll use that. Yeah, that's actually the same thing going on with Fantasian where... You have your armor, you have your weapon, and you have your accessory, which is a gem. Here's a gem makes you makes you stronger, makes you hit things harder. Okay, I'm good. So there are a lot of accessible games out there that eh, might be good to warm up with if you're ever intimidated. There are also some very dense RPGs. An example that I would think of um, would be, I already mentioned, Bravely Default 2, a game mm-hmm. which has really intense boss battles, uh, especially early on. That can be quite difficult to beat and yeah. there are exploits out there, but you're probably not going to find the exploits unless you read about them online. So you have to really have a strong grasp of the basics of building up your individual character classes and how RPGs generally work in order to be successful. I was able to ultimately beat a lot of the bosses without using guides, but that was but it required a lot of experimentation starting starting over like i was constantly starting over just fiddling around with different combinations which by the way i love games like that where (laughs) i'm uh, able to obsess over assembling the best party or mixing and matching different types of armor and that kind of thing that is when i'm like the happiest and that's why i was so obsessed with bravely default too was like 
that is the er example of that game, just obsessing over job combinations and everything. But the good thing about Bravely Default 2, I find, is even though, yes, those boss battles can be a real bear, like the Berserker, uh, he gave me a lot of trouble for a long time. You can really take your time getting up to that point and trying out on the basic uh, mob enemies what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Because even though it seems like a very complicated game to get into, it's not. It's just a matter of you toying around and seeing what works best. And again, that comes back to what I said earlier about it's okay to die because you will and really default too. Yeah, and then there's also Etrian Odyssey, a game mm-hmm. where it just tells you, make some characters, pick their classes, uh, go. <laughs> yeah, that's actually another good example of a game series that I was really intimidated to get into, but eventually did. And that was probably the only game that we're talking about today that just lured me in because I was like, is that smooth jazz? <laughs> okay, I'm I'm in. I'm going to give this a try. And I found that um, I liked playing around with the classes, and I really liked just the satisfaction of mapping two things I never thought I would really say about an RPG, but Etrian Odyssey did it to me. God, I wish that game would come to the Switch. I think I've mentioned that I've basically been watching Game Center CX on loop for about a year. Yes. <laughs> I almost want to do a Patreon exclusive episode just about Game Center CX because that'd be a lot of fun. I, I have like a 3000 word essay in me about nostalgia and uh, how TV can make you feel like you're best friends with these people who live inside your box and all of that <laughs> stuff. But one one of the worst kept secrets about Arino, the main person in Game Center CX, is that he's mediocre at other games because that dude actually is an RPG master. He is amazing yes. at JRPGs in particular. When he was doing the Game Center CX video game challenge, there's a there's an RPG within that game called Guadia Quest, which is just it's just Dragon Quest. I remember that. You can play through that entire game and level up your characters really high if you want to. He leveled up his characters. He he hit the level cap with his entire party <laughs> in the regular game, captured everything, did all of the content just on his own, on his own time. And he also did, there was a free play version. He almost hit the level cap for that version of it as well. God so, knows that, man. He- he understands what it's about. Yeah, he he loves RPGs. He was like playing Dragon Quest Nine constantly. He's a huge Dragon Quest super fan. So he spends like 300 hours grinding in Dragon Quest, which is why he's bad at everything else, because it's hard to practice shmups when you're grinding in Dragon Quest. My favorite thing about Arno is the meme going around of him just looking really despondent, and he's saying, there's not a single encouraging word on that screen. And I guess he's looking at like a a game that he was really having trouble with. <laughs> Arino, his smile, gone. Yeah, you can, his you, optimism you can tell. optimism, smile, gone. I love that. So I, I should really watch more of that series because what I watched was just fantastic. There are older PC RPGs that I think can be quite difficult to pick up. Uh, mm-hmm. An example would be, say, Pillars of Eternity, a game that has very large party sizes and a lot of armor to dig through and a lot of skill combinations to dig through as you're slowly but surely leveling up a class. I think that you can have 
choice paralysis when it comes to customizing your character and finding uh, the optimal party. And it can be a real problem, for example, in Etrian Odyssey, when the menus, when there are too many menus and they get to be kind of a bear to dig through. And that was a problem, I think, with a lot of early RPGs is that the UI just isn't very good. So it... The choice paralysis is compounded by the fact that the menus just are poorly designed. Yeah, choice paralysis is certainly a thing in RPGs. And I think it's not coincidental that the RPGs that people fell in love with as their firsts were also the simplest in that regard. Uh, Final Fantasy VI has, I can't remember, 20 or something characters like that that you can customize, you can recruit. That might be a little intimidating, but Chrono Trigger has a very small handful of friends that you can combine in all sorts of really cool ways. But the point is, there's only those few that you get attached to and you get familiar with, so you're comfortable with experimenting. Uh, A game like Suikoden, too, as brilliant as it is, I can see people being like, whoa, 100 characters, no thank you. And you have six on the battlefield at one time, which might be a little much for, for a newcomer to handle and might be intimidating. So, yeah, I think if you, again, if you are intimidated by uh, a JRPG for any reason, start with the smaller party sizes. Uh, look at Final Fantasy VII. Again, extremely accessible, extremely small cast, which, which pissed me off when I was a kid. But there you go. Yeah, I think with Etrian Odyssey, you have choice paralysis almost from the start because you have five characters to make and multiple classes. And it's just asking you, before you even know anything about the game, it's just telling you, all right, make a, make a party. I'm like, oh, I party. guess these characters seem cool. I don't know. And then you, you pick like six of the wrong characters that are all like, and at Train Odyssey, you also have to consider what works in the front row, what works in the back row. I had a lot of fun with it eventually, but at the first, it was one of those games, again, where I nearly ran away from the start because it was so, it was so like scary looking, but I stuck to it. And it can be a problem when you're upgrading your characters in that game because it's not extremely intuitive how to use the skill tree in that game. And there are, yeah. are two different types of skill trees. So you get like an ability point and you can decide whether or not you want to upgrade the class specific abilities, or you can decide whether you want to upgrade the more general abilities. And it's like, okay, where do I invest these points? I have one point and about a billion <laughs> choices to make. What do I do? We actually had that discussion with System Shock 2 because that's a game that is um, extremely stingy with your skill points and you have to decide where to put it. You make the wrong choice. Well, screw you, Charlie. You, you, you made your choice. Now live with it. I think that when I am faced with a game like that, usually I go for the OP healing ability first mm, or the mm-hmm. OP damage ability and then... I also look around for anything that is obviously going to help my character grow really fast. Um, Yes. So once I'm like set, once I have a solid foundation, then I can start exploring the abilities that will help me grow really fast. For example, in Bravely Default 2, the Freelancer class has the JP up and the JP up and up abilities and a lot of very useful support abilities. So it's really useful to grind them to the the max level really early because that will help everything grow so much faster and you have a lot of very useful uh, like status effect purge abilities and that kind of thing with the freelancer class in that game. Yeah, freelancer is seriously underrated because you think freelancer, you think a uh, garbage starting class that you just grow off of. 
no, Freelancer and Bravely Default uh, 1 and 2 is extremely valuable. And I am the same way in that I always make sure I have some kind of healing foundation, whether it's, okay, you have better regen, you actually have a healing spell for yourself. I can't even play the original Final Fantasy without having a white mage in the party, and I don't understand people who do. When I see people who are like, oh, I'm making a party with, the uh, I don't know, four black mages, I, I get tremors. I can't, I can't understand it. Yeah, figure out what will do burst damage and figure out how you do your burst healing so that you can yes. kind of be on top of it. In JRPGs, I live for the moment when I get the uh, the full party heal that will yes. allow me <laughs> to keep my HP up. And then I'm like, okay, I feel okay now. Yeah, even though sometimes it takes until level 80, I think in Dragon Quest, you get those kinds of uh, abilities much, much later in the game. It's like, okay, finally I can live. I feel okay now. Uh, Bravely Default's very generous with its healing. You can level it up is. a white mage almost immediately, and you can select your entire party and use Kiraga. It's just a huge drain on your MP in the early going, so that's the tough thing. But that's why you get abilities that restore your MP whenever you attack or whenever you take a turn. Uh, such a fun customization options in that game. So, Nadia, I have some tips when you're picking up a new and complicated rpg for the first time this won't they aren't universal and i think that especially on the pc rpg side it can be uh it could be a little bit different so i'd be interested to hear what hardcore grognard pc rpg fans have to say in this regard but here are some tips that i tend to follow when i'm picking up don't worry about being meta in the early going, just experiment, mess around, get a feel for everything. Most RPGs have a very thorough tutorial. If you're just playing through the story, probably you're going to be fine. It's not going to be until the end game content that you're going to necessarily have to truly understand the systems. I will say that if you jump into an RPG and then it just immediately start going into guides and everything there's a decent chance that you'll feel completely overwhelmed because it'll be using a lot of terms and information that you don't really understand yet. So get a feel for the game. Yeah, I would echo that sentiment and also say, if there is a tutorial area where you're actually actively allowed to try things out and learn, do it. Final Fantasy XIV has one in the inns. There's a novice area where you can learn a little bit about DPS and tanking and healing and stuff like that. It's not as robust as it should be, but it's definitely a start. There's also a mentor program if you're interested in kind of teaming up with someone who can help you get familiar with the ropes. But yeah, just get into the game and think of yourself as a newbie, not like the hero destined to save the world, because you got to start somewhere. Number two, do the side quests. The side quests, yes. <laughs> a, they give you very valuable XP. B, they give you very valuable items. C, they often are some way to open up a specific ability for your character. Like they'll be presented as optional, but in fact are not optional. Witcher 3 mm -hmm. is a very key example of this, where if you just ignore the side quests, you're going to get a bad ending. It's just how it is. But even if yeah. you're playing a JRPG like Bravely Default 2, for example, that seemingly just has a lot of kind of boring fetch quests, you can still end up finding a lot of very useful items and that kind of thing. It's how you power up. So definitely do as many side quests as you can, because if you just critical path it and power through the story, probably you're going to be under leveled 
And also you're going to miss a lot of like really good stuff. So you're probably going to hit a barrier in the main story and become very frustrated if you're not doing the side quests. Another thing, and this applies to uh, not just Brave the Default 2, but games that have uh, options like it. If you recall in Brave the Default 2, you have the ship that you can send out every day. And that comes back with some really good loot. And there are actually a lot of RPGs that will reward you handsomely for participating in their weird gimmicky ideas. <laughs> so if you have an RPG that has like, hey, connect uh, to send your, use the internet to send the ship off and uh, connect with your friends or whatever, it sounds stupid and maybe not really very much fun, but it can be extremely valuable. So don't be afraid to just take it, take the time to poke at that and see if maybe it yields something cool. And the side quests also tend to be where like a lot of wonderful self-contained stories are told and where you meet a lot of really fun NPCs. It's where you'll be saving the world, but you'll have a wonderful story about uniting two lovers or whatever, or helping to build up a town. And that can be the most memorable moments in an RPG is if you do the side quests. Yeah, I agree. Side quests have, they have a valuable story content. I mean, gosh, I just did the Dark Knight quest in Final Fantasy XIV, some of the best storytelling I've seen in an RPG. So by all means, don't be afraid to do those side quests because, yes, you get valuable loot, you get valuable experience, you connect to the game that way. And something about dying in a side quest feels a lot less shameful than dying while you're trying to complete the main story. That's just me, though. One of the things that's tough about Persona, which I should have mentioned Persona earlier when we were talking about choice paralysis, because that game is no, like choice paralysis incarnate, right? It like, is. You have yes. a day. You can do one thing. Do the thing. Who do you? Who are you going to talk to? And there are like a lot of side quests, like building up your you're building up your stats by taking on a part time job. Uh, and if you tutor somebody, oh, maybe you can meet a new uh, social link by doing that. With Persona, take a deep breath. It's okay. You don't have to do a perfect run throughout the day. Just pick a thing and do it. It's fine. And Persona Five and Persona Four Golden have the ability to check what everybody else did on that particular day and what the yes. actual stats are. Just take a look. Go do it. It's fine. If you miss things, it's fine. Missable content is okay. Just take a deep breath. It's fine. Things like uh, Persona 4 and 5 were definitely meant to be played through multiple times so you could find all the paths. And people have done it. God knows I don't have the time, but uh, some people do it. And um, they see some really great, great stuff that I'll never get to see. But the point is, you, that game is not meant to be like completely finished on one playthrough. You are supposed to really dedicate your life to it. And uh, if you do, great. If not, even if you don't, you still get a great story out of it. If you play through Persona 5 Royal multiple times, bless you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think I clocked in 136 hour, 136 hours on Persona 5 when I finally finished it. I find that you run into trouble, especially with the kind of the crunchier, more hardcore PC RPGs by trying to rush through all the content. Games like, I don't know, like Gothic or even Divinity Original Sin 2 or Baldur's Gate 3, they pay, it pays to be deliberate in the way that you kind of move the world, consume the content, talk to everybody, slowly but surely build up your character, do some grinding that kind of thing. If you just try to rush through everything, you're going to run into trouble. Yeah, that's what it comes down to, I think, for just good advice in general for these games that are intimidating. Don't rush. 
especially in an MMORPG where you see people are like 50 billion levels above you and they have these really cool mounts and this really amazing armor and you get this massive case of FOMO and kind of feel anxiety because you're not that cool yet. Don't worry. Hang out. You'll be cool someday. I promise you. And on that note, if you're playing Final Fantasy XIV, go do your your class guild quests because that's where you're going to get some decent gear. You're going to learn a little bit of lore behind your quest, your particular class, and you'll get a lot of XP from it actually as well. Yeah, Final Fantasy XIV is extremely generous these days with the XP, especially early in the game. I think you get unique abilities for doing the class specific guild yes. quests. So. You have to. That's how you get your job. Like eventually, that's how you advance from your novice position to an actual job. So you have to do those if you, uh, unless you want to. Like, I, I have seen people who have done the game like level eighty without their their job class. Like they're they're kind of crazy, but don't do that. <laughs> have fun. Uh, another tip for everybody: talk to everyone. And this goes double for old school RPGs. If you're playing Dragon Quest, you get into a town, talk to literally everybody. They will give you a hint as to where to go, what to do, what's happening in the world. They'll give you story content. Uh, sometimes they say nothing, and sometimes they say everything. So when in doubt, talk to everybody. And I think that goes for every RPG. You never know who's going to be valuable when you talk to them either. Like Dragon Quest Two is a great example. There's a, a town where if you talk to a dog, that's how you get the golden keys. <laughs> but you have to talk to the dog. Not the people. Here's another one. Most RPGs fall into specific archetypes. So look for the tank, look for the damage dealer, lean into their individual strengths. You can tell mm -hmm. the tank right away because they're usually fat and usually have a crazy high defensive stat while being very slow. Don't make them into a thief. Just lean into their strengths. Do what they are meant to do. <laughs> That's a very big one for uh, RPGs, uh, just kind of understanding. And this is actually something I did not rock until uh, Xenoblade, believe it or not, Xenoblade Chronicles, where I realized, okay, Ryan is a tank. He is supposed to aggro the enemies and make them mad so that Shulk, the DPS damage dealer, can stab them in the back. And then you have Charlotte later in the game, who's the healer. And just having that tank DPS healer if you want a good balanced party that will get you through most of your problems, that's all you really need. If you are a little bit more experienced and you want to experiment two DBS, no healer, whatever you want, go for it. But if you're new and you're a little bit intimidated and scared, tank DPS healer, you're good. It's a little surprising and bravely default too, because you're initially like, oh, well, these characters, maybe, maybe they all have archetypes that I should be fitting. Like Gloria should be the healer. Yeah. But actually, they're all the same identical stat foundation. So mm -hmm. you can make anybody into any archetype that you personally want. You can make Gloria into the Hellblade if you want, which I think is pretty cool. So um, Yeah, but that's Bravely Default is really an exception. And I think maybe Final Fantasy V is also the kind of the same idea, also an exception. I mean, it's kind of annoying when you're playing an RPG and... You meet the girl, and it's like, oh, she's obviously the healer. Okay. He's the white Here comes this guy, and he's obviously the cool damage dealer. Like, maybe it's not as much the case anymore, but you still see it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, Nadia, party composition. You really can't go wrong with a defensive tank, an offensive tank, like a paladin, an offensive mm -hmm. mage, and a healer. Or just, yes. just have a mage. 
mages are always op like almost without exception you really kind of want a mage you want a dedicated healer you want a tank like the holy trinity is dps healer tank so yes if you build your party along that basic foundation you're gonna be okay and usually two tanks are better than one because then they can support (laughs) one another and they can make a wall yeah exactly now, the problem with having a super defensive tank is that maybe you're not doing enough damage, but a lot of the times when you're playing, especially kind of more hardcore RPGs, you'll run into bosses who like can hit like a Mack truck, so you need mm-hmm. a dedicated defensive tank who can absorb that damage for the rest of your party, or else you're just going to get completely destroyed. Same with having a dedicated healer who can very quickly heal up your party. One of the things that was kind of annoying to me about, say, Dragon Age, which only had four characters instead of like five or six, was that it really limited the party composition because you definitely needed an offensive mage and a defensive and a healing mage in that game or you were really going to struggle. Yeah, because the thing is, I would always prioritize the healer over the damage dealing mage. But usually if you have that space for the damage dealing mage, you want them there because you're always going to come up against that stupid tank defensive enemy that can't be scratched with a blade. But like you cast like fire one and it goes down like a like a tree. Like it's just there's always that one boss. And finally, when in doubt, straight damage buffs are frequently the best option if you're like really feeling choice paralysis about where to go. If you can just get a straight up damage buff, you're doing okay. Um, when I'm finding gear, I will sometimes look at, I will often look at the actual weapon or piece of armor and see if it has any passive buffs to my particular mm-hmm. characters. Cause that's can be very helpful. For example, maybe it gives me a shield that will also defend me. Oh, yeah, that's great. Or, oh, a 25% critical increase, even though it's only two hit two damage points lower than the, the other weapon. I think I'm going to take that 25% damage increase from the critical hits. So uh, definitely check the passive buffs when you're looking at your new gear and that kind of thing. In Final Fantasy VI, there are several OP weapons that also cast really high-level spells when you use them uh, on random. Like I think the the Ragnarok would cast Flare on random, and the Illumina, I think it was called. I don't know what it was retranslated to. Maybe it was Save the Queen, but that would cast Pearl, a.k.a. Holy, on random enemies. And when you're in the world of Ruin, where everything is dead and, and like, undead, uh, that kind of cut through the game like butter. So to recap, Nadia, if you want to be successful at RPGs, remember the holy trinity of tank, healer, and DPS. Talk to everybody and go to Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh... If you ever have a question, like I said, no matter how stupid, Google it. It is on Reddit. Your answer is right there. And uh, most importantly, like I said, don't be afraid of dying. Don't be afraid of learning from failure. And if all else fails, just go look at the nice fan art over on Twitter. That will clear your mind and it'll be fine. (laughs) Some of it is kind of rated M for mature, but yes. All right. Thank you to Jay Chow for this wonderful topic. We really enjoyed talking about it. And if you have anything to add if you have your own tips for getting into rpgs or your own coping mechanisms for dealing with the meta 
send me a note at cat at or join us on our Discord, where I'm sure we'll be discussing it over on our channel. We have a very active Discord. It's very fun. Okay, Nadia, it's time for our March Madness update. Update, update, update. update, update, update. And Nadia, this is the final March Madness update. Yes, we have a winner. Chrono Trigger defeats Witcher 3 with a 78% win. It wasn't even close. <laughs> well, that was fun. Everyone go home, I guess. Yeah, everybody go home. That's it. Chrono Trigger, as expected, just bullied its way through the through the bracket, and that was uh, destroyed all comers like by tons of percentage points. I don't think it was ever close, ever. Even Final Fantasy VI got obliterated. Yeah, um, I have to admit, the the ending is certainly anticlimactic. But that said, there were still some moments where I really enjoyed this this particular little competition. Like seeing Dragon Quest XI survive for as long as it did was really uplifting. Well, Nadia, as is tradition, Chrono Trigger is the new champion. So I think we have to play the official song of the champion. And remember all of the wonderful memories that we've had over the past month with March Madness. Like seeing Dragon Quest XI randomly get to the final four. Could you believe that happened? Yeah, like I said, that was pretty amazing. I That was probably my favorite part of the whole thing. And like Skyrim went out in the first round. That I was not expecting. I can't remember what it went out to. Was it Chrono Trigger? I think it was KOTOR or something like that. It, it was an early one. I suppose that it was a given that Chrono Trigger was ultimately going to win because it's a consensus number one choice for a lot of people in terms of top RPGs of all time. And our Discord is full of weebs and they're the ones doing most of the voting. Yeah, I can't get mad because uh, it deserves everything it gets. It's a great game. I, one of those games that I wish I could erase my memory and play it again. But Witcher 3, I feel like I was trying to make the case for Witcher 3. It, it, it really is a wonderful and very deserving RPG. And I sort of, in a weird way, felt like it was getting short shrift during this competition. Maybe because people are a little bit out on CD Projekt at the moment. Mm, that does not help, unfortunately. CD Projekt really destroyed a lot of its goodwill and it's going to be a struggle to get it back. But it does not negate the fact that Witcher 3 was a monumental RPG. but. I guess it is what it is. Any final thoughts on March Madness? Um, hooray for Chrono Trigger. Uh, I guess you did the basketball thing. You you scored the points. And uh, I see, I'm not extremely familiar with, with March Madness to begin with. so. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun uh, putting uh, games against each other. Witcher 3 did. So during this past March Madness, for for I don't like college basketball, but even I saw this one where... They one of the teams was able to get a buzzer beater three pointer from half court to win the game, and that was awesome. And I'd say the equivalent of that was Witcher 3 managing to top one of the games on our list. I think it was Undertale, maybe. Like, I think Undertale that's right. Under Undertale got destroyed. I think, well, I think it was Undertale that was just about to overcome Witcher 3. And then Witcher 3 got the last uh, burst of votes at the very end and actually managed to squeak through by one vote. 
I, okay, I remember that now. It wasn't Undertale. I think it was KOTOR. It was one of these games. Like, I think it, it, it narrowly was, beat KOTOR. Yeah, because we were like, okay, well, KOTOR won this one. But then last minute, that one point came in and like, eh, like holy crap. That was the equivalent of the buzzer beater. For yeah, exactly. Amazing. Well, we had a lot of fun doing this particular tournament, and I hope you all had a lot of fun participating in it. I A lot of people were talking in the Discord about doing different types of March Madness brackets and tournaments and everything. Maybe we'll do another one uh, later in the year. But, I mean, obviously there are plenty of different themes that we can take on with this. We could do just JRPGs. We could do characters. We could do villains. Sky's the limit. But I do know that if we do another RPG March Madness, congratulations, Chrono Trigger. You're the winner into perpetuity. You have ascended into God RPG godhood. Next time, we'll see how things go without Chrono Trigger. Absolutely. There's the Pantheon, and then there's the, the Godhood. I will say that whatever wins, it's probably going to be a JRPG again, because again, weaves. Very much so. All right. Next week, we will be bringing in a new segment, Nadia. We're going to keep the track of the week on ice for a little bit longer. Uh, again, I, I think I mentioned that I watched way too much Game Center CX. They, every season, they have a, a new s special segment that they do. And I think that it would be fun to find new segments for us to do as well. So that keep things fresh and interesting. That's true. Although I do love doing my music. Okay, Nadia, let's wrap up with letter time. Yes, letter time. And this one is questing queers who is responding to our monster hunter rise episode, which we did last week and had a lot of fun with. They said, I really didn't like world at all. While the quality of life changes were mostly good, the way the quest structure was made more linear and story-driven really cut back on the aspects of preparation I loved. I also didn't like the level design. The hub was awful, like Destiny 2 bad. It felt like cluttered versions of the old maps with the screen transition changed into narrow connective paths. So far, I'm finding Monster Hunter Rise a wonderful blend of my favorite structural aspects of the old games with the quality of life changes that were for the better. Also, the zones are so good. By far, my favorite of the series. So, Nadia, Questing Queer seems to agree with you. One thing I really, really, really appreciate about Monster Hunter Rise is the load times. You have your few load times that are a little bit long, but once you're in the hub and once you're on the hunt, like, there are no load times whatsoever, and it is just so, uh, so well-paced, especially in the hub, because, yes, I remember now how I found Monster Hunter World's hub really confusing and cluttered to get through. But um, Hunter Rise is very, very simple. You can access the quick menu that takes you anywhere you want instantly. So it's actually, when I think about it, I actually really enjoyed Monster Hunter stories. And there are certain elements there that I find in Rise that are making the game a lot more friendly, not the least of which is getting to ride on a monster, which makes hunting a staggering monster so much more fun, by the way, when you have like, a bunch of people like getting on their palamutes and running after a uh, some sort of like monster that's just on its on its death throes. And it's kind of a a grim situation, but it really appeals to that part of the human race that still wants to kind of hunt and kill. I don't like how Monster Hunter Rise is being lionized at the expense of Monster Hunter World, a game that I really really loved and put like three hundred hours into. <laughs> I understand. No, I understand. Like, I liked World for what it was, but I did have some problems with it. And Rise does eliminate some of those problems that most of 
biggest one to me was being its speed and its uh, its accessibility. So yes, I am I am happy with Rise, but I totally understand how important World is and how it changed so many things for the better as well. The thing that I really loved about World is while Monster Hunter Rise is much more streamlined and accessible in many ways and doesn't waste your time to, to the extent that World does, I will often find myself in the camp look and just instinctively I'll look around for the handler and then I'll be like, oh, I miss the handler. She was so fun and so peppy and she worked so hard in Monster Hunter World and she felt like a great partner in crime. I loved her. She was wonderful. Well, the nice thing I find about Monster Hunter, the series in general, is that every game kind of takes place in its own little region of the world that has its own rules and has its own culture. So she's still around. She's still doing her thing back in the world world. Yeah, she's busy colonizing the new world. It's fine. Oh, right. That's the thing that she was doing. Uh, Awkward. <laughs> Actually, really like the I prefer the themes in Monster Hunter Rise uh, for the most part. So, yeah, it's a little more uh, a, a less colonial. I th- I like I think Monster Hunter world Monster Hunter in general can exist in both worlds. I think we can have our Monster Hunter World two, which follows that vibe more with an actual like more of a story and characters and that kind of thing. And then you can have something like Rise, which is much more of a pure hunting co op game. I think that there's room for both. There, there absolutely is, and I, I am actually hoping that the next console Monster World is a little bit more like Monster Hunter World. The the complexity and the more kind of in-depth feeling of the maps, which really did feel a lot more alive than than Rises. Okay, Nadia, that is it for this week's episode of Acts of the Blood God. One more time, if you enjoy the show, do us a favor, leave us a review on the podcatcher of our choice. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot and at Nadia Oxford and twitch.tv slash TV. And subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, with exclusive content for members at the $5 and $10 level. We'll be back next week, as always, only I'll be at IGN. Wow, that's amazing. But don't worry, the Acts of the Blood God lives on, even though I will just be a lot busier than I was before, because I can't seem to stop being busy. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring. Thank you.